Well, good morning, everyone. If you haven't uh, been with us before, we are in a study of Acts, looking at the early church. And if you think about kind of what we've walked through so far in these first four chapters, it's been fairly smooth for the church so far. Peter and the other apostles are boldly proclaiming the gospel. The Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. The church, as we know, has grown from that original 120 disciples to now include several thousand new believers. We know that there are many signs and, and miracles that are taking place through the apostles. And as we saw last week, when they do encounter persecution, they immediately turn to God in prayer. It was a prayer that exalted God's sovereignty. It was grounded in God's word. It was focused on faithful obedience. As we noticed, they didn't pray for the persecution to be removed. In fact, they, they knew it would happen because Jesus told them. He said, if they persecuted me, they will certainly persecute those who stand for me. They knew it was coming. They were simply praying to be found faithful in the midst of it. And God honored their request and, and immediately answered their prayer. They asked in their prayer to speak the word of God with confidence. And we learned last week that immediately they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to boldly proclaim the word of God. They were divinely empowered to walk in faithful obedience. And, and not just individually. This was a corporate reality. The presence of God brought unity within the people of God. It says that they all who believed were of one heart and one soul. There was a, a deep unity in the church, and that unity gave credibility to their witness. The Scripture says if these early Christians found favor among all the people, both inside and outside the church. Their love for one another was a testimony to the world around them. They were faithful to God. And God faithfully provided for their needs. So much so, as we learned last week, that there was not a needy person among them. And that's not because the church conducted a fundraising campaign. Peter was preaching, and to my knowledge, he wasn't preaching any sermons about tithing. He wasn't even encouraging people to give necessarily. Instead, what was happening is that each person was giving as the Lord had put on their heart. And God used those individual gifts to be a blessing to the church. Because God uniquely blesses individuals for the common good of his people. And as long as his people are, are following God's movement in their hearts through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, then we see that they are faithfully provided for because that's his design. And there is goodness built into God's design. So as we think about those first four chapters, that all sounds pretty good, right? I mean, things are going well for the early church. Despite the persecution, you could say the church is really thriving. That persecution, which was threatening to break them apart, actually brought them closer together. 
So it appears that Satan's strategy to oppose God's plan isn't working so well. But never underestimate the power of our enemy's deception. Because external opposition is not his only weapon. In fact, it's not even his best weapon. If Satan really, he really wants to disrupt the work of God, he does it from within. Satan knows that partial corruption creates complete distrust. And you and I know that as well, right? So I'm going to give you an example. I'm making up this story. It really didn't happen, but I'm using it to help prove my point. Let's say this. Russ, let's just say that you um, and some friends, a group of people went to McDonald's. I don't know why you would, but let's just say you go to McDonald's over there. I'm sliding 82nd, all right? Y'all have a meal, and it wasn't too long after that that all of the group started to feel pretty poorly. And as time went on, you got really sick. Obviously, it was food poisoning or something, but it was worse than normal food poisoning, all right? So much so that you all got sent to the hospital. And what they found was that food was actually corrupted with tapeworms. And those little creatures invaded your body. And it made you really sick for a good while. And and once you finally healed, you kind of got back on your feet again. You were able to regain an appetite for what it's worth. And and let's say you went to Dallas and you went to visit some friends who lived there. And those friends wanted to go eat. (laughs) And they want to go to McDonald's. Now, it's a different city. It's a different location altogether. But how likely are you going to be to go to McDonald's? Not so likely. Why? Because partial corruption uh, creates complete distrust. Partial corruption creates complete distrust. That's why a single police officer who abuses his power casts doubt on the whole force. That's why when a few FBI agents get out of line. It causes us to, to doubt the entire bureau. It's that old adage that, that one bad apple, right, destroys the whole bunch. Well, that's the basis of one of Satan's most effective strategies against the church. Our greatest threat is not what comes at us from the outside. It's what happens from the inside. Small little compromises can discredit the entire mission of the church. Isolated scandals bring overwhelming doubt. Partial corruption creates complete distrust. That's why we see what's happening in our passage this morning, and I'll give you fair warning before we ever get started. It's going to make you really uncomfortable. As I've told several people this week, I wrestled with this passage all week long. It is not easy. But I think it's intended to stir this uncomfortableness. I believe that was God's plan. I think what he reveals is intended to help us see that this is something that Satan is still doing and is very effective at, even in our world today. So before we look at it together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord, we want to come to you humbly and ask that you graciously open our hearts and our minds to see your truth, even in the midst of what is a very difficult passage, um, alarming in many ways. And yet it happened and it's recorded because there's a message that you intend for us to hear. And Lord, we don't want to miss that. We don't want to be distracted by other things. We, we, we don't want anything to, to cloud the understanding of what you would intend for the sake of your church, for the praise and glory of your name. So Lord, would you protect our time? Would you speak through your word? And will you change our lives because of what we learn? We pray this in your name. Amen. So go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read back a little bit of what we talked about last week, just to kind of put everything into perspective. If you'll remember, I ended last week in verse 35 of chapter 4. Go back to verse 32, and let's read this whole section together. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is after they had prayed, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And lay at the apostles' feet, they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Sapirian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, who owned a, a tract of land, sold it, and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So one of the outcomes of unity in the early church was a, a mutual care for one another. We learned about that last week, and then at the end of this passage, we see how Luke highlights one particular example, a, a man uh, by the name of Joseph. He was born in Cyprus. He was from the tribe of Levi. Apparently, he is now living in Jerusalem. He's a member of this church, and we can gather from the context that he was involved in the life and ministry of this church because he was known by the apostles, so much so that they gave him a nickname. They called him Barnabas, and Luke helps us understand why. It's a, a, a name that means son of encouragement, so it's a name that they gave this man that described his character, and it was a name that would stick because from this point, on in Acts and throughout the New Testament, we see that his name is Barnabas. This is the same Barnabas, by the way, that stood with Paul when everyone was a little bit leery and questioning his conversion because he once persecuted the church. This is the same Barnabas who stood by Mark when that apostle Paul was unwilling to let him go on another missionary journey because he had bailed out on the one before. You see, Barnabas was a faithful friend. He was a devoted follower of Christ. And Luke uses him as an example of someone who had property and he sold the land and then he brought the the proceeds and put it at the apostles' feet. He didn't tell them how he wanted them to, to spend the money. He trusted them to distribute it to those who ever had a need. He took what God had given him and used it as a blessing for someone else with no strings 
attached. And Luke highlights this example because he's going to contrast it with what happens next. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. How many of you are uncomfortable? Right? This is this is seems harsh. Seems difficult to understand. Wow, what is going on here? Well, it, it may be harsh, but it is not unprecedented. Okay? Turn, if you will, to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. And I want to look at what will be, for many of you, a familiar account looking at a man by the name of Achan. So Joshua chapter 7. And as you turn there, let me kind of give you a little background to this Old Testament story because the context is really important. By this point in time in Israel's history, Moses has died. And Joshua has been appointed the leader over Israel, kind of taking the position of Moses, and he will now lead them into the promised land. As you will call, the the first city they come to is Jericho, a very fortified city with a huge, insurmountable wall that surrounded the city. And so God instructs his people to walk around that city on the outside of this wall, blow their trumpets, and then the walls will fall down. And that's precisely what happened. The walls fell inward towards the people, destroying many of them by that catastrophe, allowing the Israelites to then go into Jericho, this fortified city, and completely destroy it. Well, now they come to city number two, a city by the name of Ai. It's really nothing like Jericho. It's kind of like comparing Brownfield to Dallas. Okay, It's a tiny little city compared to the fortified city of Jericho. And so this should be so much easier. Joshua sends out his men. They go to take the city, and they get utterly destroyed. They literally run for their lives. We learn that there are about 36 Israelites that die in that battle, and they come back and report to to Joshua what has happened. And he begins to worry because he's thinking, if we can't overtake a little city like this, how in the world are we going to conquer the promised land? This is not going well. In fact, it looks like it's over before it ever gets started. And Joshua assumes that there's an issue with the strength of his army, that they're just just not strong enough to overtake their enemies. But God's going to teach them it's not an issue of strength. It's an issue of sin. Look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 11. This is God speaking, and he says, 
Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And here's how. They have taken some of the things under the ban, where I told you not to take for yourselves, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. What I want you to notice here is that the actions of a few have put the entire nation at risk. Notice the accusation in verse 11 where it talked about how they have stolen and deceived and then went on to hide. They've stolen and deceived and then went on to hide. What belongs to God, what he put under the ban, they have taken for themselves. Now turn over and look at verse 19 in in Joshua chapter 7. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, it's a beautiful ornate robe, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Then Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of anchor, which means the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all of Israel stoned them with stones. They burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of this place has been called the Valley of Trouble to this day. I don't know about you, but this doesn't make me feel any better than our story of Ananias, right? But there's a precedent here to what we see happening in the New Testament. And there are some very important things that these two accounts have in common. And we can't miss them. The first one is the issue of timing. The nation of Israel is just beginning to experience the fulfillment of God's promise as they go into the promised land. God had given this land to Israel. And and if Jericho taught them anything, right, it taught them that God was in control. It was not by might. It was not by power. But it was by my spirit says the Lord. What's happening in the early church is very similar because they too are just getting started. 
there are miraculous things taking place. And there too, it is not because of man's strength. It is the Spirit of God at work among the people of God. So something important, something very significant about seeing what is happening and its timing just as a movement of God begins. It's as if God wants his very own people to know something important right from the start. The second thing that you see in both of these accounts is selfish intent. In Acts, it says that Ananias kept back for himself some of the price of the land. That very same word is used with Achan when it says that he kept back some of the things under the ban. That word in both cases is the same word and it literally means to embezzle or to pilfer. Now, when you think about an embezzlement scheme in our society today, you might think of somebody like Bernie Madoff, right? Who embezzled $50 billion dollars. Money that did not belong to him, that he pilfered from other people. And he's in prison today because of that crime. Well, what happened with Ananias and Achan is very similar. They kept back for themselves things that did not belong to them. And their individual compromise, in both cases, put the nation of Israel, and in the case of Ananias, the church at risk. You see, neither man, neither man considered the harm that it would bring to others. Instead, they were only thinking about what was best for them. And by sinning against God's people, they were sinning against God. It was a selfish act. And in both cases, they knew it was wrong because they tried to hide it, which is the third common thread in these two accounts, and that is the issue of deception. See, when Peter confronts Ananias, he tells him, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why have you lied to God? And when you think about that, I want you to ask yourself, well, how did Ananias lie to the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? I think there's several things that come to mind when we consider how he might have lied to the Holy Spirit. One of the things that, that if you'll go back to our account in, in Acts chapter uh, 5, when Peter's talking to him in verse 4, he's trying to help him understand that, look, you were under no obligation to give all of the profits from your sale. The problem was not partial giving. The problem was partial obedience. The problem was not partial giving. The problem was partial obedience. It was the appearance of an outward generosity, but the reality of inward greed. He was doing something different than what God had prompted him to do. He followed the influence of Satan instead of submitting to the Spirit of God. It's very important for us to not miss one of the key indicators that we may be walking in sin when we try to hide something from others. 
it's very likely if we're trying to hide something from others, there is deception in our heart before God. Here's the key. God blessed Achan. God blessed Ananias so that he might be a blessing, in this case, to the church. But Ananias stole from the church when he kept back some of God's blessing for himself. See, both Ananias and Achan were guilty of spiritual deception. Giving the outward appearance of generosity while hiding the inward reality of greed. And apparently, from both accounts, spiritual integrity is a really big deal to God. And there's a really significant message that he intends for his people in both of these accounts. Let's see if we can understand it a little better, beginning in our passage, Acts chapter 5, verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for such and such a price? And he gives her that price, and she said, yeah, that's the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, don't we miss this in kind of the shock of the situation that Peter was actually giving her a chance to repent. He named the price. He says, is this the price that you sold the land for? Oh, yeah, that was it. She was guilty of a co-conspiracy with her husband, despite the fact that she had an opportunity to be truthful. But like her husband, she fell dead and was buried with him that same day. In both of these accounts, God used Peter to speak truth into the lives of both Ananias and Sapphira. And we see here that he spoke with a a spirit-empowered discernment because he knew things clearly that were going on in their hearts. And he was confronting those things. He was calling them to repentance. But it was not Peter who brought down judgment. You see, the death of Ananias and Sapphira are the result of a divine judgment, a righteous judgment from the hand of God because they were guilty of spiritual deception. They were testing, as he says in verse 9, they were testing the Spirit of God. That's why Peter said, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Obviously, that's important, so I want us to think about that for a minute. In in order to do that, I want you to, to think back to the time when Uh, Jesus was being tempted by Satan. And if you'll remember in that second temptation, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And and they stand there looking over everything, and he says, if you're the Son of God, then jump off. For it is written, God will send his angels to protect you. Now, you remember how Jesus responded to that. He said, no, I won't, because it is written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knows 
It is a sin to assume God's faithfulness when acting outside of God's will. The Lord did not tell Jesus to jump off the temple. Satan did. You cannot willfully follow Satan and expect God's blessing. That's what it means to test the Lord. You see, I believe it's possible that Ananias and Sapphira were both believers. That they had heard the gospel, that they were a part of this church body in Jerusalem. They were moved by that generous example of what we see with Barnabas. And maybe, maybe they witnessed the, the respect that Barnabas gained when he gave that gift. Of course, Barnabas wasn't doing it to impress other people at all. He was simply responding to what the Lord put on his heart. But apparently we see just the opposite with Ananias and Sapphira. They denied what God put on their heart in order to impress other people. They willfully followed Satan's influence and expected God's blessing. They wrongly assumed that God would be faithful even if they knowingly lived outside of God's will. Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Clearly, what God did with Ananias and Sapphira became well known and caused great fear to everyone that was in the church. And I believe that was the intended effect. I believe that's what God wanted. He wanted it to capture their attention. I've always been told since I first started backpacking that you're in the most danger in the wilderness when you are most comfortable. If you've been to, pla- we've been to the same place seven years in a row. This is the first year we haven't gone, but we've been through this same place. We love it. Beautiful place in the Colorado wilderness. And we have to be careful. I remind myself of that every time we go, that we can't get too comfortable because we've been there before. Because if we start taking the little things for granted, like crossing the stream we've crossed a hundred times, and the log that's always stable all of a sudden becomes loose. And if we're not paying attention, we end up in the river. And if we didn't take the time to unbuckle our backpack because it's just too much trouble to do that anymore, then we get pulled to the bottom. People die when they don't pay attention and they don't have a healthy fear. That's what happened at Ananias and Sapphira. They died because they did not have a healthy fear. They did not respect the holiness of God, and they took his grace for granted. We learned last week in verse 33 that God's abundant grace was upon them all. And we know that's true even within this account because Ananias and Sapphira were the only ones who died. So clearly God's grace is abundant among them. Dr. Barnhouse once said that if the same thing happened today that happened in Acts chapter 5, there would need to be a morgue in the basement of every church. I would say there wouldn't be any churches left. But there's more going on here than divine judgment of an individual sin. Just like we saw with the lame man's miracle, that that was a miracle that came with the message Well, then so does this judgment. 
It is a message that is intended for the church. In fact, Peter will later say in one of his letters, judgment begins in the house of God. It is a message that says partial obedience is a complete sin. Partial obedience is a complete sin. We cannot expect God's blessing if we willfully live outside of God's will. And I think this is such an important message for the world that we live in today because it's a world of compromise. We live in a time in the church, in the church, that you can pick and choose which truths you want to believe. And if you don't like one of them, you can either ignore it or reinterpret it to better meet your preferences in life. But make no mistake, we put God to the test when we manipulate his word to match our preferences. Selective obedience is destructive to the church. Small compromises ultimately discredit the mission. Isolated scandals bring overwhelming doubt. Partial corruption creates complete distrust. Remember, God's not dealing simply with just an issue of individual sin. He is revealing individual sin as a message to the church. The point of this passage is not a warning simply about financial greed, although that's clearly part of what's going on here. It's a warning about spiritual deception. As I look at this passage, if I were to narrow it down, that's what I would say the key message is. It's a warning about spiritual deception. And so let me define that for you. I believe spiritual deception is the outward appearance of spiritual integrity, but the inward reality of spiritual compromise. Spiritual deception is the outward appearance of spiritual integrity, but the inward reality of spiritual compromise. And and I think it can be true in both things, large and small, and if we're not careful, the little small things can add up to something really big. For example, when 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 you're visiting with someone, and let's say they open up their heart and share some things that are going on in their life that that are significant, and, and you kindly respond to them, you know, thanks for sharing. I'll be praying for you. And then you don't. That's spiritual deception. It's the outward appearance. With your mouth. Spiritual integrity. But in your heart. It's not the inward reality. We do the same thing in the opposite side of things. When someone asks us, hey, how are you? How are you, Jerry? Oh, I'm good, good. Life is good. While in reality, and this is not true for Jerry, but in reality... (laughs) Let's say your marriage is crumbling or your family's a mess or, or your <laughs> it's not true, right? Okay, good. But whenever we are asked that question and then we're not honest in response, it's spiritual deception because we're proclaiming something on the outside that's not true about what's actually happening on the inside. It happens when we appear to be really generous, but we're really not. It happens whenever we... Claim to be really, really busy, but really it's just an excuse not to serve. It's spiritual spiritual deception when we have something to offer, but we choose not to contribute. Please understand this. When any of us withhold our money, 
time, our gifts, our compassion, it's not without consequence. I want you to think about everything that has been happening in the early church up to this point. Clearly, God is blessing them in significant ways. There is a unity of both heart and soul. It's deep. It's real. Their fellowship is sweet. They've dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to, to fellowship, to the, to the breaking of bread and to, and to prayer. And it says that, that the Lord was adding to their number. Day by day, those were being saved. That there are signs and wonders taking place through the apostles that, that, that clearly people are seeing the work of God in the life of His people. All their needs are being met. The church is absolutely thriving under God's faithful provision in accordance with His perfect design. But that provision is put in jeopardy when someone keeps for themselves blessings that ultimately were intended for others. See, the Spirit of God always, always, always works in individual hearts for the common good. That is a biblical truth. The Spirit of God works in individual hearts for the common good. And when we deny the Spirit, it has a ripple effect throughout the church. That's why our greatest threat is not what comes at us from the outside. It's what happens from the inside. Our enemy seeks to discredit our mission. He wants to, to disrupt our unity. Promoting small little compromises to create a really big distraction. It happens when we no longer have a healthy fear. When we have been given abundant grace and we take the grace for granted. We must be diligent to protect the unity that God has made possible. Experiencing His faithful provision through our faithful obedience. Protecting His truth, unwilling to compromise. Knowing that partial corruption creates complete distrust. And that doesn't mean <laughs> that we can't make mistakes. Because clearly we can read, I think that's why this account is so troubling. Because we have all made the very same mistake that they have, right? And, and so it stirs with us some anxiety because am I going to be next, right? We're all going to make mistakes. But God's abundant grace covers us all. We just want to make sure we don't take that grace for granted. We want to have a healthy fear and respect the holiness of God. And walk humbly before Him. I've told the staff this last week, the passage in Micah, through my normal Bible reading, I ran across the passage, we all know it, to, tells us to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Everybody's familiar with that, I'm sure. Well, when I was doing my Bible reading this week, I read the verses that precede that very common verse, and it caught my attention. Listen to what it says in uh, Micah chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn 
for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Here's the answer. He told me, oh man, this is what's good. This is what the Lord requires. To act justly, to love mercy, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, when we walk faithfully in a relationship with the Lord, knowing what He's done for us, knowing what He's accomplished on the cross, knowing how complete and perfect His sacrifice was for the forgiveness of our sins, for the praise and glory of His name, then our actions are not based on all the things that we do for God, but a realization of what God has done for us. And we respond in faithful obedience, not because of His favor, but out of that favor. And it's a favor that we realize is complete. It's sacrificial. And we want to do for others in a way that reflects what He has done for us. He didn't hold anything back. It was a complete and perfect sacrifice. And as we interact with one another, we want to be faithful to do the same. In our time, in our gifts, in our compassion, in our giving, so that we don't have the spiritual deception of presenting one thing when inwardly hiding something different. Let's pray. Lord, there are certain passages that we look at in your word that disturb us. And that's probably good. Because sometimes whenever we get so caught up in all the, the flowery things that think that we don't do anything wrong, we miss out on the things that we can do that are dishonest. Where we present an outward appearance of spiritual integrity, but yet hide the inward reality of spiritual compromise. Lord, I, I hope that as we look at your passage this morning and the words that you spoke and the message and what took place with Ananias and Sapphira, that if anything else, it just brings us back to the place where we can trust you. If we will follow you to do what is right in your eyes, do the, the next right thing, whatever that is that you put on our heart, that if we follow that faithfully and fully and completely, that you are, your provision is always sufficient. You're always enough. Individually, corporately, and your mission will be carried through just as you intended it would. That there is not even the gates of hell, not even Satan himself can stand in the way when we are faithfully following the work of your Spirit in the lives of your people. So Lord, I pray if anything, it brings us to a place of trust. We don't take your grace for granted, but we live faithfully in a way that honors your name and what you've accomplished on our behalf. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.